Hello and welcome to the Music History Project. Today we are talking all about Ravi Shankar. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shudler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are joined by a new co-host, Hooray. Michelle Shedler. Yeah. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks. Super excited to be here. It's my first podcast ever, so we'll see how this goes. Hopefully, I don't disappoint. <laughs> we have a lot of fun here, so I think you'll We're do all good. about the fun. <laughs> and what a great topic we have today. One of the living legends, when I got the chance to meet him, was so... Uh, what a spectacular opportunity it was for me to hang out with Ravi Shankar growing up listening to his music knowing the impact that he had on the sitar and the Beatles and all of that wonderful stuff as part of his history was just phenomenal because as you're about to hear from his interview he was an amazingly nice guy just gentle and sweet all about how um he wanted to bring peace to the world through music and he really lived it. Everything he did, nearly every sentence he uttered was all about that one goal. And amazingly, I think he made a huge impact as a result of that. Yeah, I definitely heard that. Um, the very first time I actually got an opportunity to kind of figure out who he was and what he did, I was just blown away with all the positive things that he had to say about every single person he's ever met. It was just a really nice interview to listen to. Cool. Well, let's just jump right into it then and start out by hearing from Ravi on where his passion for music came from and about moving to Paris. One of the things that's rather intriguing to us is where the passion for music comes from. I wonder for you, where did you develop? I don't know. I guess I was born into it because from my early age, I was very lucky that I got to the whole atmosphere with my brother Uday Shankar, who was very famous, as you know. He was the first artist, a dancer, who made a group of dancers and musicians starting from 1930. And uh, we were based in Paris. And at the age of 10, I came from direct from Varanasi, where I was born, to Paris. So it was a great change for me, and I was in the world of music all of a sudden, music and dance. And that was when I was equally a dancer as well as a musician, playing different instruments. And we had, my brother had very good musicians in the group. So I was hearing all the time, learning as much as I could. And this is how I spent my eight years touring, Paris being the center. We came to 
United States, first time 1932. I remember so clearly four times till 1938. And the great impresario Solomon Hurok was our presenter. And my brother was the first superstar from India. And it was a fantastic time, really. Until the war started in 38, we had to disband the troop, and my brother started an institution in a hill station called Almora in India. And I, meantime, while this period, my brother got the greatest musician in the world, I am sure, at that time, Ustad Alauddin Khan. And he joined the troupe as a soloist of playing the Sarod. And uh, I was, you know, like his interpreter and like his son. He immediately took, took me because he left his son Ali Akbar Khan, uh, who was very young at that time, in, back in India. So I was like his interpreter, taking care of him. And he was one year only with us, touring mostly Europe. And he had to go back because he was in service with Maharaja of Maihar, a small native state. But that one year was something which changed my life because he took me as a son and started teaching me the sitar and some songs and classical basic training. And it was, I was amazed to see such a great musician. Why I'm talking about him is because it's very little known about him. You know about us, me, Ali Akbar, and a number of other great musicians from India today, but he was greatest in the sense that he was not just a Sarod player, he played almost every instrument equally well, excepting the sitar. Somehow, strangely enough, he didn't play the sitar, but he knew all the technique because he had learned from great sitar players of those days. His main thing was Sarod, he was known for that, but he was the only person who could play the Sur Singar and Rabab, which were the classical. This is not the Afghan Rabab, mind you. Mm -hmm. The name is Rabab, they gave same name, but it was a much more developed instrument in the period of, from starting from sixteenth uh, early 16th century, at the time of Akbar, the great the emperor. Uh, there was this great musician called Tan Sen. I am sure you heard the name. Mm. And uh, he sort of was the court musician, principal musician, and through his family, two lines, the daughter's side and his son's side. The daughter's side, they played the pin or veena the North Indian Vina with two big goats. And the sun side, they played the Rabab, which Tansen himself invented. It was not like the Kabuli or the Afghan Rabab, but it was a special thing which he invented. 
and <clears throat> the style of their playing, both the Sur Sangar and Rabab, Baba was the best exponent of that. No one knew about this, unfortunately, because he was more known for the, he played the violin like all his life. And he took the same violin, which is common, but he's played with his left hand. You know, he was ambidextrous. He could play the sarod with the left hand, tabla with the right hand, write with the right hand, eat with the right hand. He was fantastic. I mean, I wish I could tell so much about him. And he was a composer. Every day he would compose at least three, four songs, a lot of instrumental pieces. He was, I mean, Unfortunately, even India people don't know much about him. Well, I love listening to his voice for, for one, and I'm guessing that you guys are falling in love with him too. Just an amazing guy. And um, I mean, think about the fact that he and his brother started out as dancers, right? Went to Paris and he was so musical always. So he wasn't the first thing to start playing a musical instrument, but as soon as he did, he was completely connected. And I just love that. That's a, an amazing thing. I did want to mention um, that we were real blessed uh, back in 2009 to conduct this interview. And I just want to give a little shout out to the folks that made that possible. Uh, very close to the headquarters here in uh, Carlsbad, California is Encinitas. And there lies the Self-Realization Fellowship uh, association down there and it's an amazing place um, all about spreading love and um, peace great folks to work with uh, if you ever get a chance to go and visit I think uh, you will uh, not regret it so just a little shout out to those guys that's actually where the interview took place and uh, again I said that was back in 2009 so um, we're really really proud as you can imagine that uh, Ravi's uh, interview is part of our collection yeah and I think before we get into our next segment which talks more about the sitar and his um, musicality playing that instrument I figured it'd be a good thing to talk about the sitar in general, what it is as an instrument. It's it's a cool instrument that a lot of people have heard of, but like me, I'm sure there's plenty that don't know that much about the sitar. So it is a plucked stringed instrument, which originated in India. It can have 18, 19, 20, or 21 strings, which I thought was very wow. interesting. <laughs> um, it has two bridge systems, uh, six or seven of the strings, depending on which uh, type of the instrument you have, are playable and the rest of the strings are drone strings which gives the sitar that distinguished sound that we're used to hearing hmm. and let's see the tuning of the instrument is very interesting um, so the tuning of the instrument is always different and that will depend on the sitarist's school or style as well as their tradition and just personal preference so Listening to a sitar, you probably don't hear the same tuning twice. I'm, I'm guessing that a lot passes down through tradition and teachers will show their students different teachings. So that's very cool. Obviously, we're talking about Ravi today, um, one of the more well-known sitarists. Um, but there are also a couple others that play sitar that we've actually interviewed that are in the collection, one being uh, Dave Mason, who played sitar with Traffic. I know Dan got that interview, hmm. as well as uh, Robbie Krieger, 
with the doors and the sitar has also been featured on um other artists tracks such as zeppelin the yardbirds the kinks rolling stones um and ravi even played at woodstock so that can really <laughs> tell you how he elevated this instrument into pop music which is just crazy and i think the first um real major breakthrough of the instrument was Norwegian Wood by the Beatles. Mm. And once that happened, it was amazing. It just sort of became part of the 60s culture, that instrument, that sound. And what is really kind of amazing to me is thinking about, like we were looking at Wikipedia for the sitar, in the first paragraph is Ravi's name. I mean, how many instruments are so associated with one particular person? It's amazing. And what he did to that instrument was, um, you know, completely amazing, influential, yes. But in addition to all of that, he was bringing a message at the same time. And that's the part that I think was most near and dear to him was the message. It wasn't just the music. And he lived it, as we said earlier. And that's what I hear when I hear him play is the message. So next thing you're going to hear is actually how he chose the sitar and how it kind of just fit him. Um, he, as it was stated before, very musical, very talented man. So it's interesting to hear how he lands on that one particular instrument. I was fooling around with the sitar because, you know, I didn't have proper training, but I was very good in picking up things by hearing. Mm. So. And there were two wonderful musicians. They really started me without seriously teaching me. You know what I mean? And uh, I was playing the sarod also. I was playing the sitar, the flute, banging the drums. But, you know, not properly trained. Baba put me, I called him Baba. He put me on the groove, actually. Started me and started teaching me vocal music as well as, and he says sitar would be best. You should leave all and concentrate on sitar. So within that one year, he really changed me. And unfortunately, he had to come back because he was in the service of Maharaja. So that was the maximum time he could spend. But then, of course, after he came back, for two years I was again touring with my brother as a dancer and playing all instruments. But ho my whole mindset was completely changed. And I was toying between, and my brother was anxious that I should keep his work. He was planning all the institution and you know. But I, I made up my mind and in 38 when we came back, when the war broke out, I straight went to Baba. It's a remote village, native state, Maharaja being there. And started my almost seven years stay with him. I toured with him also. And uh, it was something fantastic in the old style of Gurukul system. And uh, having been so utterly spoiled, touring all over the best hotels, best life, and you know, my first youth in Europe and America. Mm. It was such a different, you know, that simple life and so much of mosquito, bed bugs, <laughs> snakes around. And, but then it took me a little time and strength of mind. Mm. 
and Baba's love and the great music. And my life changed, really. So I took my career and then, of course, gradually everything wonderful happened to me. Did you record with him? Not with him, unfortunately, no, no. But I used to tour with him when he had concerts, sitting with him, in initially playing the tanpura, the drone instrument, but then also playing the sitar, he would encourage me. But you know, he was such a, I'm the only person I have seen who came almost like him in temper and that personality was Pablo Casal. He would utter something, you have, and if you didn't pick up first time, all eyes will be, his hair stood up, you know. He has very little hair, of course, but his beard and all. I have never seen terrific, absolutely. But I'm the only person he never, one day he only said, I was performing and there was some very difficult left hand and combination of cutting the strings, cutting, you know, sound-wise. And I was a bit slow in that, otherwise I could pick up everything immediately. He was very happy always. But that day, because I couldn't pick that up, he said, go where? Go, where? Bangles. That means what he meant, that your hands are like girls. You have no strength. So go where? Bangles. That was enough. I had tears and I just went and packed my suitcase and was ready to take the next train to wherever I thought that I mean, no, I was really completely, because from my childhood I have never been scolded by anyone and I couldn't take it. He was the greatest musician that I can think of. Mm. I'm telling all this because really little known, very little known about him. And he's recently passed, is, is that right? Uh, pardon? Did he recently pass away? He passed away in 1973. Ah. At the age of, I mean, according to our calculation, at the age of 93. But unfortunately, what happened after he was almost 70, he was so sturdy, so strong, but he grew old very quickly after his 70s, his health, number of problems, and he would say, every few months, he would say, I'm one year older, you know, like that. <laughs> and because, you know, uh, among the Muslim community, I think they follow the moon. Uh, so their years are, are whatever. He would say f five years more than what he was. And he's next year again, another few years. So that way, they even <laughs> had a centenary of him when he was hardly 85 or so, something. But, you know, in truth, he was really 93, 90, maximum 94 or 95 mm. when he died. And uh, Ali Akbar Bhai, you know, I saw him, he's two, he was two years younger to me. And I saw him from his childhood, he, and I never thought he would grow out to be such a great musician. You know, he didn't seem that all because Baba used to beat him up and scold him so much he was not wanting to practice even, you know. 
but somehow something happened. First when I saw him before going to Baba coming with us in 1935, I, I thought he is going to be, you know, but when I came back and saw him next, when I went to my had to learn in 1938, he was already so wonderful. I couldn't believe it. Mm. And of course, the whole world knows now he was such after Baba died, I considered him the greatest Sarot player. I'm talking about Ali Akbar Bhai, yeah. who unfortunately died recently. One of the things that I found really interesting about Ravi is the fact that he has the title, kind of the father of world music. What an amazing title to have. <laughs> like, how much does that say about him and just his cultural experience? And what he did. Yeah. I mean, he earned that title. Right. Uh, just even from the beginning, just all the places that he's been and all the opportunities that he's had and have has been open to definitely deserving of that title. Amazingly, he also brought something um, along with the, the love and peace that we're talking about when he played his instrument. He also donated most of his earnings as a performer to better the community that he was in and around. And, you know, he started a foundation. The foundation has raised a lot of money for a lot of different organizations and charities to help people. And that was what he was about too. And I, it's important to say that. I know um, George Harrison's felt the same way, you know, of course the concert to Bangladesh and those kind of things um, were all very much a part of the core that uh, I think he got from, from Ravi, that spirit, that, uh, you know, uh, giving returning, you know, what is been given to you, you know, those kind of concepts. And, um, and again, you know, when we were mentioning what you hear, when you hear his music, I hear that too. Mm-hmm. For sure. Cool. So let's hear from Ravi talking about his title, father of world music. One of the things that I'm sort of intrigued by is the, um, the title that George Harrison gave you is the, the, the father of, uh, world music. Well, how does this sit with you? Well, that was sweet of him, and uh, I can only justify that because I, of my childhood and bringing up, the way I was brought up. You know, I just tried to not only listen, but you know, it whole my system took it so naturally. Those days in Paris and touring, that was the period where I heard Yasha Haifitz, Young. I had Fritz Chrysler. I mean, name it. Toscanini conducting, Shaliapin singing, and all the greatest classical musicians. I saw the greatest dancers. I miss Pavlova, but any other ballet dancers, Spanish uh, flamenco dancers or modern dancers. Then came the jazz which I loved and uh, of course I heard them all in the vaudeville shows. In those days they all played, you know, Scatchmo, Duke Ellington, and name them, all the great ones. So, you know, I just 
I was assimilating all what I heard, and it everything became nothing was unfamiliar. So that was the big thing in me, and then. I was hearing all the classical music of the wonderful musicians that my brother had in his troupe. And then came Baba uh, for one year. So already, you know, all this enriched me, my mind, my soul, everything. And I was familiar with all sorts of music, folk music, classical music of any part of the world. Balinese, Javanese, Chinese, Japanese, name it. So all of this had something to do that and then when I was in All India Radio for those years as a composer and director of music, we had a small chamber orchestra. That was the first time where I tried to have an Indian chamber of orchestra, though the only two things I had, which was uh, three things, not Indian actually, which was violin, a cello, and a clarionet. And the rest of the instruments were all Indian, south, north, every. And we had to do a five minutes piece every week, and some special occasion, half an hour piece or 20 minutes piece, and that's where for almost five years I had this opportunity of trying out Indian music, short pieces based on strictly classical or little contemporary classical or folk or thematic, some storytelling, opera type things, all in Hindi. So that gave me enough with all, all that I had in my heart and my mind. And I had also b worked with a lot of doing ballet music, like I did the first discovery of India written by Pandit Nehru as a ballet, uh, one and a half hour with intermission. And I did three, four different ballets. So all that, you know, gave me a lot of experience and my background experience of my brother, from whom I learned how much to give. He used to say, give, if one is very hungry, give, you know, we call chapati, if that is roti, bread. Said, so give him two. If he can eat five or six, give him two piece and don't give him any more. Let him be a little hungry. So that was the basic of my training, you know, not to bore people, <laughs> whether, whether in my composition or in my recitals. So in, in India, most people have, you know, habit of eating so much of rice and they want so many things and which is all right, because they are used to it. But you know, you cannot serve a Westerner or a new person who doesn't eat that food that much. It's a very natural thing. So I tried to, you know, adjust my performance without spoiling the character, not mixing raga, not fusion or anything, but within our framework to have enough of slow piece, medium, very fast, 
something very spiritual, something very romantic, something very folkish. So I completely tried to make this and then especially after All India Radio Service, first time I came to by my own. First time I came when I was 10, that's not to be counted, but it fed me all the experience, you know. I started performing as usual, a total performance of two hours with an intermission, which, is unha which was unheard of in India, because any classical musician, they have always to prove by singing a rag, one single raga, maybe for an hour and a half or an hour at least. Then people feel satisfied, oh, wonderful. You know, that's, that was the tradition. And I was criticized, like anything, by Indians, that he's not giving pure music, you know, by making it short and just proportionate of every little thing, they condemned me, my own people in my own country. But that was for, say, about three, four years it went. Then gradually that died out. But unless I had done that, many people before me have performed out. And they were never recognized. But I went to remote uh, places like New Zealand, Dunedin, near the South Poles, or, or uh, you know, Helsinki and all these, any remote place, Soviet Russia, Japan, and by God's grace, because I knew already what uh, what could be very boring, you know, because I always heard from people in the period when I was with my brother saying that Indian music is very boring. You don't know when they start or when they finish because tuning takes so long time, you know, which I said in Bangladesh concert, you remember? Uh -huh. They applause after our tuning. <laughs> because they thought that was peace. So I said, if you like the tuning so much, I hope you will like our performance. <laughs> well, that was the, you know, my own people started criticizing me, but because of that, I really made the way, uh, or the first time they started appreciating our music, and gradually other musicians from India got a chance to come. Mm. Technically, you see, this was uh, 55, just my last days of All India Radio. I was very friendly with uh, Menuhin. He had come in 1952. I met Menuhin first time in Théâtre de champs in Paris, mm. which was way back when he was 16 and I was 12 in Paris. He was rehearsing in the morning uh, with Hepzibah on the piano and Georges Enesco, who was his guru also. He was a good friend of my brother and he used to come to our house and sit, hear the rehearsal and hear his, our music. He loved it. Andre Segovia was also our neighbor. I used to sit on his lap and sometimes he would take the guitar and perform with my sitting on his lap. So we were very lucky, you see. And 
Where were they? I was saying... You, you heard him anyway? Yeah, many. So, George Enesco took us to the rehearsal in the morning in Teatro de Chanzelize. And his sister Hepsibah was on piano and they were rehearsing. And man, I remember Yudhi, he was so chirabi and he had half pants. And I met him then, but that was all, you see. But many years later, 1952, Pandit Nehru, our Prime Minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, he invited Yehudi uh, to come and perform. He gave some special performances in Delhi, uh, Bombay, Calcutta, Madras. And that was when I met him really properly. Not only met him, but I played for him at a friend's house, who was a government of officer and invited him. And he was absolutely floored. He embraced me and we became friends and we were corresponding. He wanted me to go. And this occasion came, the Bloomingdale, I think there's a store in near Bloomingdale and Asia Society combined. They wanted to do India Week or something, you know, selling Indian things and Indian music. So immediately he sent me a cable to Delhi <coughs> to come there. And at that time, unfortunately, I was having some family trouble at my home. So I, I couldn't go. But I wrote to him, my guru's son, his the greatest Sarot player today, he can go. And I'll send a junior who is learning from me in my group, Tabla player. Chaturlal to come with him, go with him. He didn't know that that time who was. So I explained him he's the best. And that's how Ali Akbar came, huh. which was very good because it was such a great success and they made the first long playing record in which many did little introduction and they had a very successful recital in New York and also a television show and everything. Yeah. So. This was uh, the incident. I came one year later by myself. And of course, I later had some program with Ihudiman and I composed a few pieces. We played together. Much later, it was performed in Edinburgh Festival. We made a record which got Grammy Award. So that's how it happened. I was always fascinated with his playing, and I, I never got to meet him. I wonder what sort of person was he? Well, I mean, I can never say enough about him. You know, I have met so many great musicians, uh, all, almost all of them in my time, and even recently I do meet. But he was so unique as a human being, not just musician. He was so beautiful person, and apart from music, he had a feeling for everything, you know. And he was so well spoken, you know, and writing everything. God has given him such beautiful soul. I've never come across a musician like him. And he had this love and respect for anything, you know. It's very natural. Even for our Indian great musicians or the Western, they have one track mind. 
they, it's very difficult for them to appreciate anything else. I mean, whatever the reason is, but he was something, anything, a folk drummer or a jazz musician or Indian musician, he had that admiration and love and he could immediately, you know, react, which was so unusual. And we became, I mean, he was like my brother and he loved my wife, Sukanya, very dearly. He was, you know, like our family member, loved him. I know that you uh, wrote some songs for him. Did you ever write songs together? No. I, I mean, I never wrote. I just sat with him and I was, it was coming out everything. And I was uh, performing and singing it. And uh, I know little of Western music or notation, so I could not properly write. But uh, then few time I played something, he would write it down. That's how we, I taught him that whole piece and then we performed and I did the, uh, you know, some parts I would play, he would play them together, all that sort of thing. Mm. That's amazing. I love to listen to his music. You should hear the latest thing I've done, I mean, last year, I wrote another violin and sitar, but this time I didn't play myself. Anushka, my daughter, played with Joshua Bell. It's coming out soon. Uh, Joshua is uh, bringing out this record with different combination of musicians that he has played with. And one of it, uh, they performed it in the Vevier Festival in Switzerland last year. I'm very happy with that. And he's such a fantastic musician, Joshua. Well, I know um, many aspects of your musical career many people do not know much about, like your arranging, tablet arranging and... What? Your arranging. Ah. Like with, um, I was noting in my collection that you did arrangements for Buddy Rich. Yeah. <laughs> You've yeah, done that, so much. I have done so many things. It has not been, I mean, recorded, yes, but recordings are gone along with Dick Bock, who did, you know, Richard Bock was my friend, World Pacific Records, and we did a lot of things. But I did one, two large, long playing anthology of Indian music, you know, talking and demonstrating all different compositions and old form of Dhrupad Dhamar, all this singing as well as playing. That record is not available. Mm. Many things are not. You know, I remember sitting there listening to Ravi and hoping that we were going to get a chance to talk about all the different aspects of his career. So it's kind of cool that we did get a chance to do that. Uh, sometimes as an interviewer, you're not really in control. And since there were so many people sitting around listening to him and he was sort of trying to appease different people's interest, I wasn't sure exactly how much of his own career we're going to cover. But I was really glad about the songwriting, which is very important. Some of the stuff that he wrote is still being played 
and appreciated and arranging i mean you, you know it's it's funny if you don't play that particular instrument you don't really think that it's been arranged you know that, that you can do that it's more of the song was made for the sitar and that's not the case he made a lot of songs that were uh created for other instruments or on other instruments and arranged it specifically for the sitar and that's a talent for sure he made everything seems so effortless. That was the thing that is amazing to me about, you know, one talent after another, after another, and he's an amazing guy. It was just absolutely a thrill to uh, sit next to him. You know, we were talking earlier, and I wanted to make sure we mentioned that um, the sitar was in a lot of popular music uh, for a long time. It, beginning in the 60s when he introduced it to popular music thanks to the Beatles uh, a lot of other people were recording um, with the instrument and we failed to mention earlier Vinnie Bell who was a session player in New York and did an awful lot of recordings using the sitar and did an amazing job as well and so just a little shout out to Vinnie out there yeah if you want to check out his web clip he talks about um, the Dan Electro instrument that he created hmm. um, and that's on the NAM website right under the library tag fantastic so where are we going next how he actually got involved with the Beatles and everything that kind of happened following his introduction to that Beatlemania um, he like you said earlier he definitely not only talked the talk but walked the walk so it's interesting to kind of hear his perspective on how his crowds changed and how his music became more popular and just kind of the side effects from that. Could you tell us a little bit about how um, you became friends with the Beatles? How did that come about? Well, I first met them at a common friend's house who had arranged a dinner in London. This was way back in 65. Sometime in summer, I think. And uh, it was just, they, they had become very famous. It was either end of 65, yeah, very tail end or something. And uh, it was one of them, who was George, who seemed to be, you know, all the time with me, the whole evening he was with me asking me questions about the uh, relationship with music and religion and yoga and the Vedic things. I was surprised, you know, coming from a rock and roll person and I was very attracted to him. That's how it started. Then he met me once more and he said he didn't want to learn sitar. And I started the lesson that, that time he was living in somewhere else, not the present place, in Asia, outside London. And I was so, you know, attracted to him because of his quest, his questions, and especially the spiritual aspect, or religious aspect. It was so fantastic. And then he came to India. We spent some time in Kashmir. I gave him his lessons and uh, it was a wonderful. And I really loved him like my son, or brother, or friend, everything together. He, he was such a charming person, 
and his quest was so genuine. He, I gave him his first book of autobiography of a yogi by Yogananda. That really helped him so much. And then he read books. I gave him books of Vivekananda, and he what he really tried to find out, and he was very much deep into, is not the ritualistic religion, you know, but the philosophical and the spiritual of the Vedic culture. And uh, he was very much into it, really. A beautiful soul. Yeah, and he taught many people about Indian music and bringing that to life. Yeah, that was the second phase. The first phase, Ehudi Menhin helped a lot, and I toured. I was playing in Carnegie Hall, Royal Festival Hall, Sydney Opera. But it was a, a nice group, you know, large group, full houses everywhere. But George's association brought the kids. Of course, I was a bit unhappy because all these kids were too much into drugs. And that's something which I was speaking out from the day one. You know, I tried to tell them, don't associate our music with it. And that then came, of course, Monterey Pop Festival, which again, big hate Ashbury, Tantra, Mantra, you know, sex, all hotspots together, yoga, and too much LSD and all that sort of thing. I was always having problem with the, you know, that group, what do you call them? I forgot. San Francisco was the base before the uh, hippies. They were the intellectuals. They Beatniks. were like beatniks. Uh -huh. beatniks. Beatniks. Exactly. And you know, I had met people like Aldous Huxley and all the famous people and Timothy Leary and all these. But you know, unfortunately, I saw them very much into drugs and things like that. And I was unhappy even then, before. But when I saw the little kids, 14, 15, 16 years into drugs and uh, it hurt me very much. And their associating Indian music hurt me more. Whenever they made a film or anything, you know, orgy singing or all into drugs, you'll hear this sitar twang. That for two years I went on speaking and cut myself my box office myself, because they were naturally hurt. They didn't realize what I was trying to say. But I'm glad to see that that sort of thing came as a, you know, much normal. But that was a difficult period. Mm. Back home, I was being criticized that I've become a hippie myself. They thought I was the fifth Beatles. Things like that. But uh, anyway, that period is gone and I'm happy about it. Well, I think what came from that, maybe it started before, but I always associated the whole opening of world music and sharing musical cultures. Really absolutely, absolutely. This. 
absolutely that happened world music was uh, and because what i was doing as composer was really not known much whether it was with the new york uh, philharmonic or london symphony orchestra or documentaries that were made or ballets that i did music for they were not known so george had uh the access to all this music he heard i gave him records and uh, recordings of some and he realized it that i'm trying out many things without just copying you know if you have noticed that excepting uh yehudi menuhin and rampier rampal i have not performed with any or what do you call when you just jam with someone i've been asked by all the best jazz musicians pop musicians but i have not done that because i thought that i i can definitely try it out but i thought what's use because i don't know their music i've not performed and i didn't want to make myself a full world trying to just so but i have composed in my compositions i have taken inspiration from everywhere folk of anywhere rhythmic drumming melodic that i have done very interesting i wonder if you could take a minute to tell us a little of the background the history of the sitar <coughs> background of sitar is the veena in veena also if you study you will see that we have two principal any stringed instrument was called the veena with additional name in front like vichitra veena saraswati veena rudra veena satatantri veena i mean it went on all the string instruments but principally there were only two types of veenas in the south what you see in the photo sometimes with uh, saraswati the devi uh, the goddess of learning and music one small gourd here and a, a gourd here and uh, they is mostly almost lying not upright and they play it's a bit beautiful looking instrument and the north there were also number of different veenas but the main veena was sometimes called saraswati veena or rudra veena but it had just a bamboo fingerboard and huge two two big gourds and they used to take it one gourd was here and the other was here very difficult to handle and even to sit with the veena was it took long time to and that was the old style of music which was in contemporary to what is known as the dhrupad dhamar all this style of singing because singing and playing instrument were very much attached together in the old days and that was for years only it is 
19th century early, someone says 18th century late, but I think actually it was in the 19th century that sitar took shape after many little difference people were trying to make it more easier to play before it had a small gourd in between also three one big one middle one and a medium size then after a lot of changes through many years the present day of sitar which was more developed in calcutta than anywhere else and that is the sitar that I started playing, you know. And it is a very versatile instrument because you can play on the frets and you can pull the string, stretch it and get the effect of vocal music, you know, glissandes and things like that. And uh, became most popular string instrument really. Sarod also became popular in the hands of Baba Aladdin and some other great Sarod players and especially afterwards Ali Akbar Khan and they are wonderful Sarod players today also. But sitar always was among the North Indian uh, Hindustani style of music the most popular instrument and especially because you can Pull almost till the fifth. Da, da, things like that, you know. So it gives the vocal effect. So that become very popular. Did you use traditional um, tuning always, or did that vary? <coughs> there has never been a traditional tuning, really, because the Vina not the bean as it was popularly called with two tumbas and the bamboo the tradition they tuned it lower almost a as the tonic and till about maybe b flat and they had they could play three octaves in that but sitar because they were different size one very large sitar was known as surbahar that was only meant for alap, jod, jhala, and not with tabla, gatha, not the khyal, contemporary classical style, only dhrupad, dhamar style, and without tabla, sometimes with pakhawaj maybe, like in the dhrupad style, but that was much larger. That was tuned to almost, you know, I would say tonic would have been uh, the, the like soul, do re mi fa sol, mm. that note, G, as the tonic. But sitar then came, came much higher tuning because it was smaller and sharper. So anything ranging from B flat to D depending on the size and preference of the musician as the tonic. Man, just listening to this interview, he just sounds like a cool dude. <laughs> I mean, you hear of him with all of his recordings and like I've seen his performance at Woodstock and kind of all the stuff that 
most people see when they look into his career. And he seems like a nice guy, but hearing him talk to you one-on-one, it's just, it's confirming everything that you would think. Yeah. And peaceful. That's the thing, mm, you know, definitely. so peaceful. What a, what an amazing guy in career. Another aspect of his career that we didn't mention that I think is worth mentioning is uh, along the way, he started a record label called East Meets West and uh, was able to, as a result of having his own label, not only put out his own material, but the material and recordings of a lot of other people that would have not been recorded otherwise, or at least distributed the same way. And I think he did that for a lot of different reasons, the obvious ones, including the fact that it was very difficult for him to first get a recording and you know it was a strange instrument it was you know world music wasn't really a thing and you know a lot of record labels wanted to know what's the market how much money are we going to make on this and i think that he really did all of us a great service by creating that record label because now available to us are all kinds of things instruments that even I, i am unfamiliar with i get a whole recording of now and get a little background and they do a really wonderful job so uh, if you haven't been uh familiarized yourself with uh uh, east meets west the record label please do so i think that you're going to find some very interesting things that uh that have been recorded and are now documented thanks to that label and to ravi and speaking of that he wants to talk about the benefits of music (laughs) perfect segue all right here's more of ravi One of our missions is to encourage people to become music makers and make this a part of your life. And I wonder if you could help us with your understanding of the benefits of music. I remember reading when you were talking about the spirit of music and things like this, and I wonder if you could share some of those thoughts. Well, I mean, my personal thing is that music plays so major part in my life. Even sometimes I can't sleep properly because it is all the time I'm doing something or finding some mathematical problem in counting. We have so much rich rhythmic world in our music. Nowhere in the world it is, you know, rhythmic cycles, not only four or six, but five, sevens, thirteens, fifteens cycle, and you know, to think of compositions, think of triads in it, which is very popular, anything three times, and with one, coming, starting from one. So these things, you know, keeps me awake whole night sometimes, and all, even when I'm eating or talking, something is going on in my head. So I can, it's very easy to say music is my life, but what does that mean? I mean, it depends upon different people approach to what they call life, you know. Then, of course, there's that tremendous part, what we say spiritual side. Mind you, not religious, but spiritual something which can't be explained by, I cannot explain it by word. When I perform myself or practice alone or sometimes even when I perform for public, it happens. Maybe for a few minutes, maybe for a longer period. Where I become, I can become one with, with my instrument 
my whole thought process. It gives me goosebumps. It gives me, brings tears to my eyes. I feel something so special. I don't know whether to call it God or what. But then I feel many a times reaction in the public, people having tears in their eyes. Some are like this with their eyes closed. That's what I call the greatest music, the greatest moment of music. When I become music myself, there's no difference between my sitar or me. Sitar becomes alive. And these are things, you know, very hard to explain. It sounds very high-worded things, but these miraculous things have happened to me and is happening to all the time with me. So now I feel the whole world, which is not bad, I'm not criticizing, but the overemphasis in music, it seems in virtuosity, speed, A and B, banging, too much rhythm, too much A, and that's what excites people. People get up and start dancing, and which is fine. But I think music also has something deeper side. I'll tell you one story. Again, Baba. This was way back in 59 or something. I was at his home in Mayhar, and uh, I went to visit him for a few days. And there were a few guests who had come in the evening. There were some scientists, some professors, some very academic people, you know, from different cities nearby. And they all respected him. And they, one of them asked him, Baba, what do you think of this present trend? Everybody is running, speed and virtuosity and bang, bang, and the mic loud and especially speed and people are getting crazy. So he says, well, let me ask you a question, he said to the, this professor. How high has man gone? So in just before that, the Sputnik, the Russian thing had gone. So he said, oh, Baba, now it has gone so many thousands of miles, and very soon it will reach the moon. And he was saying, my God, can you imagine? Then I, he asked, can you tell me how much deep has man gone? So he said something about in the ocean, I, I don't remember, maybe four miles or something. He said, that's all? So that man was thinking, what the hell is he talking about? I mean, I asked him a question about music. Then he said himself, you see how much easier it is go, to go up, more practice, more practice. Every year, Olympic, uh, your record is broken by someone, getting faster. But why not deeper, deeper? So in music also, same thing. You can fly and do all those acrobatics and people get crazy. But just one note and just a little bit, 
and bring tears to anyone's eyes or give that deep feeling is very, very much more difficult. So I think it was the, one of the best examples. Thank you. That's a very good story. <laughs> <laughs> I thank you for sharing that with me. That's very, I thank you for sharing that with me. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. He was a fantastic person. I really want the world to know more about him. Mm. Well, this is great, you guys. I just want to thank you both. It's an amazing opportunity to share now his voice, and I'm really very privileged that we have that opportunity here. I'm hoping that we've also shared his message of peace and how music can bring peace around into the world. I'm hoping that we can also uh, be a little bit more understanding of each other as a result of just listening to that amazing, peaceful voice of his, and that we've learned a little bit. So uh, thank you both. I really appreciate it. Also, a special shout out to Michelle for her first podcast Yay! ever. Yay! Hooray. Thanks. Great job. Welcome to the team. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you for listening once again, and we will see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.